0: Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty.
1: Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter.
0: It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never ending quest for clarity.
1: This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. This is hour two of our daily two-hour broadcast slash podcast. Now, the the key is, if you are listening to this in the live hours, which would be from 7 to 9 a.m. Mountain Time, you can always call in. You can be a part of the conversation. I welcome uh, other points of view. I, I love dissenting points of view. And unless lest that comes out sounding like, I'd love to fight with you, that's not what I'm saying. I, I mean, I, I would love to discuss. I'd love to argue with you. But uh, you will find that... Um, I can be a pretty agreeable fellow, even if we don't agree on a single thing. I hope that makes sense. I hope it doesn't sound duplicitous. It just means um, you don't have to agree. Nor do I have to agree with you for us to go ahead and get along and treat each other like human beings and hopefully come away at the end of a discussion with a better understanding. Even if it doesn't change our minds, we at least come away saying, "Okay, I'm I'm seeing this from a, a broader perspective than I was before we started. That's the goal. That's all I'm saying. All right, let us move on. I'm excited about the topic I want to bring up this hour because I want to talk about the Old West. And I want to start with an article that was published on Ammo.com. I I never know who the author is because I don't ever see a byline on these, but I I just want to recommend Ammo.com. In in addition to being a place where you can go to buy ammo, which uh, I think is always a good idea. For those who love the shooting sports, as I do, ammo is how you convert money into skill. Because practice and training are are how you become not just a gun owner, but a responsible citizen. But they also have wonderful articles. Very well thought out. And this one, the American Old West, how Hollywood made it wild to make money and advance gun control, is well worth your time. I will link to it in the show notes. The article says Hollywood has a clever way of distorting our perspective on history. And a great example of this is Western film. That's a movie genre we've all come to love. Cattle rustlers, guns blazing, outlaws running loose, vigilantes dishing out vengeance indiscriminately. <sighs> these scenes have become more synonymous with the American frontier than Winchester or the cartridge that won the West. But these fictional tales have produced more than, than entertainment for over a century. They've also contributed to an ongoing if not subtle, push for gun control, all while making millions for Hollywood. Revisionist history books tell us that the Wild West was this anarchic period of time that was not conducive to human prosperity. It brings to mind the Hobbesian nightmare, a life that's brutish, nasty, and short, ingrained in our consciousness thanks to decades of public schooling and violent images on the silver screen, which are actually pretty light on history and very heavy on creative license. However... Individuals who believe in liberty and developing their critical thinking faculties should be skeptical of most mainstream narratives, especially those regarding American history. After all, these narratives, by and large, have been created by Hollywood, a legacy institution that has historically advanced politically correct content with the support of Washington in order to perpetuate a cultural status quo. So when the curtain of political correctness that's been draped over this particular period of history is pulled back, what we end up seeing is a much more nuanced picture of the American frontier. In fact, research by historians like Peter J. Hill or Richard Shankman, uh, Roger D. McGrath, Terry Anderson and W. Jean Holland, w. Eugene Holland rather, show that this period was rather indicative of a not-so-wild Wild West. Now, for the purposes of this article, they say they'll refer to the Wild West as the Old West. And this is by no means a pedantic distinction, but rather an acknowledgment of the fact that this time was really not wild by any stretch of the imagination when compared to other chaotic histories, periods rather in human history. In fact, the Old West had its share of challenges for American settlers. But as you'll see, crafty settlers found ways through ingenuity and mutual cooperation, all done with very limited state interference to create a stable order for generations to come. So let's talk about the not so wild wild West. The article says the old West was not a paradise by any stretch of the imagination. There was conflict between groups such as American settlers and native American tribes. Once they came in contact in the great plains and other parts of the frontier. Now this was natural due to the cultural differences that existed between these groups and the lack of defined property rights in those regions. However, In more settled towns on the frontier, there was not as much violence as the Hollywood flicks would like you to believe. One of the most important texts, rather, disrupting this depiction of the Old West was W. Eugene Holland's Frontier Violence. Another look. Holland argued that the Western frontier was far more civilized, far more peaceful and and a safer place than the American society is today. Additionally, historian Richard Schenkman makes the case that popular depictions of the Old West belong more in a movie script than in a real-life historical account. Schenkman said many more people have died in Hollywood Westerns than ever died on the real frontier. Now, Dodge City has become a landmark for Western movies, but its portrayal is more fiction than reality. And Schenckman also dismantles the Dodge City myth. He says in the real Dodge City, for example, there were just five killings in 1878, which, by the way, that was the most homicidal year in the little town's frontier history. Scarcely enough to sustain to sustain a typical two hour movie. Larry Schweikart of the University of Dayton also pointed out that the infamous bank robberies that captivate movie audience audiences were not very frequent. His research uncovered that there were fewer than a dozen bank robberies in the Western frontier from 1859 to 1900. In essence, Schweikart argues there are more bank robberies in modern day Dayton, Ohio, in a year than there were in the entire West in a decade, perhaps in the entire frontier period. OK, I got to pause for a minute. and I just have to ask you, does this surprise you like it surprises me? Because I didn't realize how deeply I bought into the Hollywood narrative until I start hearing this alternative point of view. Arguably the strongest and most concise text regarding the true history of the American West, Terry L. Anderson and Peter J. Hill's The Not-So-Wild Wild West, has forever changed the way Americans view the American frontier. Anderson and Hill's research found that the establishment of property rights was key in taming the American West. Now, indeed, this process took time, but it was well worth it. The Old West was a demonstration of human ingenuity and long-term planning that eschewed the quick fixes of modern-day politics. For instance, in mining-related matters, American settlers found ways to peacefully adjudicate disputes, which Anderson and Hill noted, in the absence of formal government, miners in a particular location would gather and hammer out rules for peacefully establishing claims and resolving disputes over them. The authors went on to say that rules that govern Western mining and mineral rights evolved literally from the ground up. These developments in the Old West were no trivial occurrences. They set the stage for even bigger developments that the authors note below. Not only did the miners pave the way for mineral rights throughout the West, but they laid the foundation for Western water law. Now, this manner of peacefully settling property rights disputes carried over into other sectors like ranching and farming, now, there were obviously various roadblocks at the start, but the settlers still found free market ways of getting around these obstacles. In some, Anderson and Hill's findings demonstrated that the Old West was not so chaotic. Here's a quote from them. In the mining camps and on the open range, the six guns seldom served as the arbiter of disputes. Instead, miners established rules in camp meetings and cattlemen used their associations to carve up the range, round up their cattle and enforce brand registration though not all attempts at dispute resolution succeeded, institutional entrepreneurs found ways to define and enforce property rights that created rather than destroyed wealth. In short, the West really was not so wild." End quote. Now such scenes of mutual cooperation on a voluntary basis are almost unheard of in today's political climate. For many busybody politicians, all meaningful economic activity must be conducted under government supervision. As a matter of fact, had any of the problems in the Old West surfaced in present times, there would be instant calls for the government to step in and try to fix things. Once the unintended consequences of these interventions set in, the calls for more government help would come back to life. Well, Thankfully, our forebears were much wiser in the late 19th century, and by maintaining a relatively hands-off approach, the federal government allowed the unsettled American frontier to naturally tame itself through the voluntary cooperation of settlers. Now, when it comes to understanding violence in the American West, you know, some of the most infamous images of the American West always consist of scenes of extreme violence and vigilante justice. And many history books have implanted in the minds of millions of students that gratuitous violence was the normal way of life on the American frontier. But it also doesn't help that Hollywood's greatest Western films were laden with epic shootouts and cliche conflicts between outlaws and law enforcement. And although there is some, there may be some slivers of truth in these depictions of the American West. They also tend to be exaggerated. Since the 1970s, a wide array of literature has challenged these common assumptions. In Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, historian Roger McGrath looked at notable western cities in California, Bodie, and Aurora to see how they stacked up against modern cities as far as crime rates were concerned. And they provide some context to the famous scenes of bank robberies in the Old West. Next to stagecoach robbery, bank robbery is probably the form of robbery most associated with the Frontier West. And yet, although Aurora and Bodie together boasted several banks, no bank robbery was ever attempted. Most of the bankers were armed, as were their employees, and a robber would have run a considerable risk of being killed. Imagine that. We'll come back to this after these messages. partner. And welcome back to Loving Liberty. Yeah, we're talking about the American West. And I admit it. I will just freely admit it. I have bought into the myth that, well, you know, it was the Wild West for a reason. And that's why everybody had to be armed. Everybody was armed. But that was because that was it was a tool. It was just, you know, the gun they carried was as much a part of their day to day life as the car keys that you and I carry around in our pockets. But as far as the lawlessness of the American West, I'm reading this wonderful article from Ammo.com about how the, the view we have about how wild the Wild West may have been is actually mostly Hollywood myth. And I'm a little bit ashamed to, to realize that uh, they may have been exaggerating, and I totally was buying into it. 801-331-8113. Let's go to the phone. Sam is on the line from Missouri. Hi, Sam.
0: Hey, good morning to you. Um couple of things come to mind with this particular article, and that is uh, the the fact that uh, if you want to do a little bit more digging, you will find that the police department as we know it today is a fairly recent phenomena. When you go back into the, in the, the old days of the Wild West, you had sheriffs primarily, the Wild West as Hollywood would call it, it's really not this wild. See, in my research, the same way, I really didn't find it as, you know, as much about it being as wild as a lot of people made it out to be in Hollywood, but but the main thing I, uh, that I want to take away from that is the fact that we didn't have police departments back then. Everybody looked to the sheriff when they needed when they needed to uh, deal with a uh, the, the times where there was a murder, or there was a theft, or whatever. They didn't have police departments like we do today. The other thing that came to mind while I was waiting during the break is that. Uh, whether it was a wild west or whether it wasn't, it still doesn't make a case for gun control. Um, today, in many ways, things are more crazy than back, you know, than back in those days. You know, morality was certainly better back in those days than it is now. But like you said in the case of the, in the other article, private property was uh, much more uh, regarded than it is now, and. Uh, now we just have a different kind of robber barons called government
1: yeah and politicians
0: <laughs> yeah there you go and uh but we seem to we seem to buy into the myth that somehow if they do it it's right it's always right and uh which you know i would beg to differ you know it's it's wrong for them to steal just as much as wrong for me to steal but um but the interesting thing is what I find particularly amazing is we have a government that is calling for gun control, along with many people out there that are brainwashed into buying into it. So you're going to give up your right to defend yourself to a government that's more corrupt in a lot of cases than uh, than the people in society at large.
1: Oh, I, I would have to agree. Yeah. And look, I don't, I don't want to have to return to the old west standards of, you know, outdoor plumbing and having to ride a horse and buggy or a wagon everywhere we have to go. But uh, clearly, they were they were capable of self governance, and I guess to the degree that we've given up our ability to self govern, um, we get what we deserve—good and hard.
0: Oh, absolutely, and I and I agree with you. I don't think we have to return to the days of primitive living necessarily, but just the idea that just the idea of borrowing from them the things that made things you know better than they are now. You know, I, you know, we can learn a lot from them and carry that over into today's world if we would just do it. But see, the 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 best way to to um, to uh, put a society in bondage is to take away history, and that's exactly what's happened. And I had a, a friend of mine one time mention. He said the worst thing that ever happened to the rural areas, for example, was when satellite television came to the rural areas. And I got thinking about that, and I said. Wow, you know, he's right, because, see, that's how... See, traditionally, here for the longest time, Brian, wasn't it the cities that were becoming more decadent for the longest time than the rural areas? You know, rural areas were where you still saw a lot of people that had faith, they had, uh, you know, they're raising families and nice communities to live in, and, and they still are to some extent. But you start to look, and you see that because of the mass media being piped in via satellite and everything now, that the rural areas are becoming more and more like the cities.
1: Crime, yeah. yeah. That kind of thing. Sam, I really appreciate your take on this. Thank you. You bet. You have a good day. Thank you so much. 801-331-8113. Again, I'm going to post this this Ammo.com article uh, in the show notes, which you can check out. Go to uh, fm and type in Loving Liberty Radio Network and it'll just pull it right up you're looking for the second hour of the Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde program A couple other statistics here and this these just bear out the idea that armed citizens deterred the robbery of individuals while armed homeowners and merchants deterred discouraged the burglary of homes and businesses and and the, the thing that this points out is America's long established gun culture and civic responsibility of providing defense Transitioned quite seamlessly to the American frontier. And historian Roger McGrath provides some interesting statistics, for instance, on robberies in Aurora and Bodie, Bodie in California. Between 1877 and 1883, there were only 32 burglaries, 17 of homes, 15 of businesses in Bodie. And again, Aurora seemed to have fewer still. At least half a dozen attempted burglaries in Bodie were thwarted by the presence of armed citizens. Now let's compare those numbers to American cities. Are you sitting down? You ready for this? Bodie's five-year total of 32 burglaries converts to an average of 6.4 burglaries per year and gives the town a burglary rate of 128 on the FBI scale. In 1980, Miami had a burglary rate of 3,282, New York 2,661, Los Angeles 2,602, San Francisco, Oakland, 2,267, Atlanta 2,210, Chicago 1,241. The Grand Forks North Dakota rate of 5.56 and Johnstown, Pennsylvania rate of 5.87 were among the lowest in U.S. cities. But the rate for the United States as a whole was 1,668 or 13 times that for Bodie. Even general theft wasn't that much of a problem. And these are the conclusions that McGrath came to when he was observing the robbery rates in Aurora or Bodie. He said institutions of law enforcement and justice certainly were not responsible for the low rates of robbery, burglary, and theft. Rarely were any of the perpetrators of these crimes arrested. Even less often were they convicted. So in McGrath's view, it was armed citizens that were the key factor behind low burglary rates. The citizens themselves, he said, armed with various types of firearms and willing... To kill to protect their persons or property were evidently the most important deterrent to larcenous crime. Now, this is consistent with the findings that gun researcher John Lott uncovered in his book, More Guns, Less Crime, when he analyzed states that liberalized gun laws during the 80s and 90s. Many of these states witnessed substantial decreases in robberies when citizens were allowed to not only defend their homes, but also to carry firearms for personal defense. Now, as far as rape was concerned, women were virtually safe from all occurrences of rape in Aurora and Bodie. Aurora and Bodie's Bodie's records of no rapes, and thus a rape rate of zero, were not matched by 19th century Boston or Salem. From 1880 through 1882, Boston had a rape arrest rate of 3.0, Salem 4.8. A conversion factor of 2.6, a figure consistent with FBI data in 1980, gives the towns a rape rate of 7.8% and 12.5. Nor are Aurora and Bodie's rates matched by any U.S. city today, although in in 1980, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, they had a rate of only 5.7. Now, McGrath did concede homicide rates were indeed High in the Old West. But there was a caveat because their cases of homicide were confined to fights between willing combatants. In other words, this is when dueling was still a thing. That's because there was an honor culture that prevailed. McGrath said while the carrying of guns probably reduced the incidence of robbery, burglary and theft, it undoubtedly increased the number of homicides. Although a couple of homicides resulted from beatings and a few from stabbings, the great majority were from shootings. And when you think about it, it makes sense. Firearms are very effective tools in dishing out lethal damage. Guns did facilitate homicides, but McGrath argued there was some nuance to this. Now, when we come back, I'm going to share with you an article that I found a couple of years ago that just blew my mind. So how did they handle the law or disputes in the Old West? Did everybody just shoot it out because of that honor system? I think the answer is going to surprise you. We'll cover that when we return on Loving Liberty.
0: Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.
1: hey welcome back to loving liberty i 'm brian hyde all right we 're talking about the old West and i 'm still just a little bit ashamed to realize uh, you know I really have carried with me this lifelong um, image of the old West as you know this was, <laughs> it was it was a place of blood and gore and violence and you know it was it was untamed and uh, I'm getting a much different sense from this article from Ammo.com that a lot of our perception is based on how Hollywood has inflated and exaggerated the violence to make movies more interesting. Crime, relatively low. In fact, extremely low compared to what we put up with today. Now, as far as killings, yes, there were a number of killings, but you got to remember this was an honor-based system. And oftentimes it was uh, it was men dueling it out, mutual combat. Now, you may say what you will about well, that, uh, that's a terribly uncivilized time. But just remember, you know, in the, in the founding period of our nation, I believe Alexander Hamilton uh, met his death at the hands of one Aaron Burr, over what? A question of honor. I'm not saying we should go back to it, but uh, you know, a lot of the crap talking that people engage in on social media, um, I think that stuff would stop a lot quicker if people knew they had to back up their words with their lives. Please don't misunderstand. Therefore, we should be shooting it out over every disagreement. I'm just saying uh, where, where honor was taken seriously, people chose their words a little more carefully. People were a little less eager to try to provoke one another. And I think that may have actually been a good thing. A couple of years back, I guess it's been about four years ago, I found an article by Max McNabb, Order Without Law, Anarchy in the Old West. And it blew my mind because he was talking about an interview that was done with U.S. Marshal D. Harkey at 92 years of age. Now, this interview was conducted back in 1958, but this was a guy who lived through much of the Old West. And Max McNabb says, you know, the Western is the great drama of man in nature. The frontier reveals man's true character stripped of state and civilization for better or for worse. Now, he did point out in his article over the decades, Hollywood screenwriters have influenced our view of the old West. Current perceptions owe more to 1950s Westerns than actual history. Watching those old movies, though, it seemed like there was a lynch mob in every town and murderous gangs constantly preying on helpless pioneers. Only the cavalry or lawman could impose order on frontier chaos. As Ryan McMacken notes in his excellent Commie Cowboys, although John Locke may have been able to imagine a functioning society that existed before government, the Western film clearly cannot. So was the true Old West a Hobbesian nightmare of violence, or did the strong strong oppress the weak on the prairie until the intervention of government, or did Hollywood craft a statist myth? Well, according to U.S. Marshal D. Harkey, the reality of the Old West was order without law, society without state. It was anarchy in action. Now, Harkey was 92 years old in 1958. At his home in New Mexico, the former lawman gave an interview to Mark, Monk Lofton, rather, just two weeks before he passed away. Harkey set the record straight about the Old West and he expressed the unease he felt for his own role in transferring the responsibility of law from the individual to the state. Born in Richland Springs, Texas in 1866, Dee Harkey was orphaned by age three. Raised by an older brother, Dee worked as a farmhand and a cowboy. At 16, he became a deputy under his brother, Joe Harkey, sheriff of San Saba County. The first man Dee ever arrested was Deacon Jim Miller, the most prolific, psychopathic hitman of the Old West. Four years later, Dee was married and farming in B County when a dispute with a neighbor, George Young, turned into a knife fight. Though never a big man, at the time of his death he weighed less than a 100 pounds, Harkey apparently had no difficulty winning the fight to the death. In 1890, Harkey moved his family to Carlsbad, New Mexico, and soon became a deputy U.S. Marshal. His memoir, Mean as Hell, was published in 1948. At 72, he fathered a child with a young woman. The boy was given up for adoption and didn't discover the identity of his birth parents until he was over 45. Harky told Monk Lofton, I have never contended that any of the good men of the Old West were all good, nor that any of the bad ones were all bad. There were mean, vicious outlaws then, just as there are today, mean, vicious outlaws. Mean as the worst of them were in that day and time. Many of them made good friends. Loyal, accommodating, and to a certain extent, trustworthy. Most of them had no quarrel with me personally. It was just that law and order interfered with their way of doing things. On the subject of his duties... Harkey said, like most men of that day and time, I neither approved nor disapproved of law and order as it is interpreted today. I was more interested in taking care of D. Harkey, of course, than imposing my opinion as to what I thought was good or bad for other people. He says, I took the job of deputy United States marshal, not because I felt qualified to judge other people, but because the job paid a good salary. Now, naturally, he says, I realized the reason it paid a good salary was because it was hard and dangerous. In that day and time, the job of an officer of the law was not to establish either the innocence or guilt of the men for whom the warrants were issued, but to deliver those men safely to the court for a fair and unbiased trial. My only agreement was to serve the warrants. Harkey then explained what in those bygone days were commonly termed the laws of the West. And this is where it's just fascinating. On the frontier, beyond the reach of the state, Westerners lived by unwritten laws in their dealings with each other. Lofton said, in complete disregard for the laws of the nation, each man more or less made his own laws, or should we say, his own code of behavior? Harkey answered, if he wanted to live to be a very old man, he did. In those days, a man was used to his very life depending on his code of behavior. Before law and order came to the Old West, justice among men was something that each individual tried to live by within himself, lest he become a hunted man. Not protected in the law, but most likely to be killed by it. The penalty for wronging a man in those days was usually having to face him with a pistol at his side, and regardless of how fast a man might be with a gun or how good a shot he might be, it could easily be assumed that the other was just as fast and just as good as the offender. If anything, the man who wronged another in those days was taking a bigger chance in being punished for his crime. A man in his right mind then didn't dare wrong another purposely, and if he figured he might have wronged him accidentally, he was quick to make amends. To catch that greater personal responsibility, Harkey continued in saying each person pretty much enforced the laws as he understood them. If the strong imposed his gun on the weak or became ruthless in his dealings with his fellow man, there was always the posse. Now, were the majority of posse's which lynched men, uh, which lynched accused men, justified in their actions? Harkey said, regardless of how men are tried, except by God alone, there are possibilities of mistakes. Those people who had to dish out punishment themselves instead of having someone else dish it out for them, as is done today after sentence is pronounced, were usually pretty sure of the guilt before the punishment. Naturally, the formed posses were never considered as a means to an end. They were just about as unpopular with the law as with the lawless. Now, contrast Harkey's remarks with the Henry Fonda film, The Oxbow Incident from 1943. Gary North refers to the didactic movie as a liberal propaganda film disguised as a Western. Lofton asked Harky if he preferred the law of the gun to the law of the court. Harkey said, it was just in that one case, the state or federal government, as the case may be, enforces the laws. And in the case of the West, each man felt responsible to see that no law was broken against him. In the event of damage caused by a man... Caused a man rather by the breaking of a law by another Each man felt he must take it upon himself To either punish or kill the man who wronged him In those days the wrong was considered first The responsibility of the man to whom it was directed He says when I took the job as Deputy United States Marshal It became my job to assist in the transference of the law From the individual to the territory And later to the state of New Mexico And then he says I wasn't sure which was the better method then and I'm not sure now. Now, Harkey wore a badge, but his sense of justice was still of the frontier variety. A number of times he served warrants on men who'd killed for what Harkey believed were justifiable reasons. Men's whose only mistake was enforcing the old laws of the West. Harkey admitted he himself would have drawn a gun for far less cause than most of these men. He says, in many cases where I felt justice had already been properly executed because the law had been broken in its execution, it became my job to bring dangerous men in for trial. Whereas many of the crimes had been founded on justifiable circumstances, I knew, just as many of the lawbreakers knew at that time, that the courts were usually founded on the hard facts set forth in a law book. But he says, as I said, my job was to serve the warrant, not to try the culprit. Harkey's arrest methods also show how far America has fallen. Instead of kicking in doors at midnight or no-knock warrants... Harkey always told a man honestly that there was nothing personal about my serving a warrant. Before making an arrest, I told him the simple requirements of my job, often on a friendly and impersonal basis. Many of them, even though I knew all about the crimes they committed, I considered my best friends. And often the mere fact that I had a warrant for their arrest made very little difference in our friendly relations. Because I had a warrant for their arrest, however, I never doubted that many of my best friends would kill me if they got the chance. It was not a personal thing with them. It was just they knew me too well or they knew me not well enough. He explained, it was not that they wanted to kill me out of malice or anything like that. It was they identified me with the laws of the United States government at a time when they were still trying to live by the laws of the six shooters. It was the law, not the man whose job it was to bring it to them, that they were fighting. How's that for a different perspective? Have you ever heard anything like that before? All right, we got to take a quick break. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I will have both of the articles I've been discussing this hour posted in the show notes uh, when I get the podcast put up. And that'll be, uh, well, uh, just uh, shortly after we get through uh, broadcasting here. So check it out. Anchor.fm.com. Loving Liberty Radio Network. Uh, by the way, I've recently discovered Twitter. And now I'm starting to use uh, the Twitterverse as a means of uh, getting the word out. Ha, <sighs> technology is so fun. <laughs> it's such an amazing thing. This article by Max McNabb. Order Without Law. Anarchy in the Old West was such an eye opener to me because it it involves the interviewing of an old U.S. marshal, a guy who actually lived and worked in the Old West. And, you know, it's it's fascinating to me how there was a time where a man was responsible for enforcing the law or at least enforcing actions of laws that had been broken against him. And you may tell me, well, Brian, we're much more civilized now that we have outsourced it to government. And I would say, really, explain to me the lawlessness of, for instance, uh, federal law enforcement under the Bureau of Land Management, sending a 200-man militarized task force to go up against Cliven and Bundy and steal his cattle and threaten his family and try to provoke lethal action among the people who came there to defend the Bundy family. Seems to me there was some mighty uncivilized behavior. And you know what? It wasn't the militia that was leading out on that. It was the government that was supposed to be protecting and upholding their rights that in turn became this this instrument of plunder and an instrument of provocation. Now, you may doubt what I'm saying here. You can disagree all you want. But the reason that uh, Clive and Bundy and Ammon and Ryan and Mel and Davey are free men today has everything to do with lawlessness on the part of the government and that lawlessness coming out in the course of their trials. And that's something to remember. The men of the Old West had the courage to forge their own code. Harkey, in talking about it, you know, he says, which, which do you regard with more respect? He was asked, do you regard the laws of the Old West or the laws of written documents with more respect? And Harkey actually smiled when he was asked that question and said, I knew that was coming. He says, usually people of strong, friendly bonds are more or less of the same will and opinion. Most of us who are living today were not U.S. Marshals 70 years ago in the New York, in the New Mexico Territory. The majority at that time who are still living did everything they could to keep the territory free of laws and regulations. Naturally, they wanted as little interference as possible with their early way of life. As for myself, however, he says, I feel that I'm one who did a great deal to establish the laws of the written document, as you put it, in southern New Mexico. I just couldn't let myself think now that all the chances I took to bring law and order to Eddy County might have been wasted. Isn't it fascinating, though, that that was actually a priority for people at one time to keep their life as free as possible from artificial rules? That doesn't mean that they were lawless, you know, you know, rogue individuals out there, you know, playing on every preying on everybody and, you know, trying to just uh, subjugate their fellow man. They understood morality, they understood right and wrong, they had the responsibility to uphold those things for themselves. They just didn't want to complicate it as government often does. I mean, I'm look, not to put too fine a point on it here, but. We have so many laws on the books right now. Nobody, not even a judge, can say with absolute certainty, oh, yes, this is totally within the bounds of the law, and this isn't. Why? Because the law is constantly in a state of flux. It's being added to, I mean, in my home state of Utah, 500 new laws every year on average. How does anybody keep up with it? Sometimes those are clarifications or tweaking or striking this part of an existing law. My point is there are so many laws on the books. No one can say with certainty that they are absolutely a law abiding citizen. There's always some technicality in which a person can be reined in. And this is particularly true when you get to the realm of federal laws. Every one of those laws expands state power. Every one of those laws necessarily curtails a bit of our individual freedom. Now, the sad truth is for a lot of people, that's a trade off they prefer. Freedom is more responsibility than they actually wish to shoulder. And so they welcome it. Oh, thank goodness. I don't even have to think about this. Somebody will tell me what to do. They're looking for an authority figure to tell them what they can and cannot do in their lives. Because that's easier to them than the responsibility of studying things out for themselves or shouldering responsibility for themselves and doing the heavy lifting themselves. And and I'm not just talking about, you know, things like, well, would they not know that murder is wrong? Come on. There are certain acts that on their very face we know are wrong because they result in a clear victim. Murder being one of those laws. That's a mala and say law. On its very face, it's an evil act because it creates a victim. But what we are eaten up with are mala prohibita laws, which are words on a piece of paper from a bunch of people who are held in lower esteem than used car salesmen. No offense, used car salesmen, but politicians are less well thought of than you guys are. and all those malaprohibita laws do is prohibit a specific act because i said so like i said words on paper and the more words on paper we have the more interference government can can engage in within our lives The men of the Old West had the courage to forge their own code. They remained Haley's kind of Harkey's kind of people, rather. And, and when uh, Lofton, interviewing the marshal, asked him, did you ever feel like a traitor? Do you still admire them for trying to maintain an, the way of uh, American frontier life? Or do you feel that you justified them as the last opposition to civilization and a gentler way of living? Now, Harkey actually sat there and thought about this silently for a moment. then he says, I'm not sure. Old Mrs. George Larrimore was 98 years old when she lay dying a few years ago, at which time she sent for me to come see her just before she died. Perhaps no stronger bond of friendship was there in the Old West than that shared by the Laramores and the Harkies. Both families consisted of the law and the Lawless. lawless. And this is what she said to him at her deathbed. D, she said to me, I've lived a long time. I'm 98 years old and now I have to die. I swear to you, she said, I believe the laws were better when they were made by each man by the use of his own gun... Than they are today. I believe when I was a young girl, people were more law-abiding than they are today. And Harkey paused and then continued, knowing as well as she did, D. Harkey, the young man of the old west, together with D. Harkey, the United States Deputy Marshal. He says I've often wondered which of those two characters she wanted to see when she knew she was dying. Was it the serious, hard-working D. Harkey who helped bring present-day law and order to Carlsbad, or was it that young, hellish D. Harkey of the old west? "'You were always an honest-to-goodness, hell-roarin' westerner,' she said to me kindly. "'And I couldn't tell if she actually meant to criticize or to acknowledge my sincerity "'in trying to do a hard, dangerous job to the best of my ability, "'for which she felt there was little reward due me.' "'Lofton suggested the old woman had meant to compliment him "'for making her town a better place. "'Oh, no,' he smi- he said and smiled again. "'You didn't know, Mrs. George Larimore. "'For her, there was never a better place to live nor more of it "'than in the New Mexico Territory.' She wanted law and order, I'm sure of that, but she thought its only existence was in the way parents teach their children to maintain it. Give them a gun, she used to say. Teach them young how to use it, and the good in most of them will take care of the bad in the few. Then another time she said to me, when the law starts giving out guns, the lawless are going to come a lot nearer getting them than the law-abiding. Interesting. Interesting. Look, I don't know if this this shifts your your thinking one way or the other. At the very least, though, it does give you a little bit broader perspective. How did they make it work? Well, they definitely assumed greater responsibility. And I would submit to you that the laws that, that were on their books or the laws that they were trying to uphold were upheld out of a sense of respect. In other words, they recognized the benefit of it. So many of the laws today, and I'll just give you the example, you know, uh, is it taking responsibility, for instance, when your neighbor's yard starts getting overgrown with weeds and your first reaction is, well, I better call code enforcement and (laughs) get somebody from the city over here to uh, send them a citation. I'm sorry, a courtesy notice, which is a citation disguised as a letter with an implicit threat or sometimes a very explicit threat. Clean this up or we'll come do it for you and then we will charge you money and fine you. Until it's done or you know there's always coercion if you still fail to do what we tell you to do maybe we'll slap a misdemeanor on you and then guys with badges and guns will come to enforce it how is that a better way than a neighbor simply stepping up and walking over to his neighbors and saying hey I see we got a little problem with weeds how about me and my boys come over and help you tackle this or I've got a scout troop that's been looking for a way to to do some service here in the neighborhood Let me send a little army of weed whackers out there. We'll have this thing nipped in the bud in about 30 minutes. See, I think one of those approaches is actually pretty consistent with the way that the men of the Old West lived. And this is just my opinion, but I think that was the more honorable way of solving problems. I know there's complexity in our society today, and I know there are people who, well, how could we possibly do it with so many people? I don't know that that morality relies on the number of people involved, but I think we'd have greater respect for the law if there were a lot fewer laws and they only applied to areas that actually matter, rather than this micromanaging of every aspect of our lives tendency that we see today. For what it's worth, that's what I think.
0: Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan
1: outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.